When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the Atlantic Division capsule, and what the capsules are is it is the off-season in-review and a season preview of the Atlantic. And for this episode, I have Tim Bontemps of the New York Post and Jared Weiss of CLNS Radio in Boston provide a good background on a lot of the teams in the division. And the conversation ends up going on to some other directions, but it's also great. I wanted to include it. Conversation itself runs about two hours. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Likewise. Thanks, Danny. We're doing the Atlantic Division, and the way that I've been starting these the division-by-division previews, and we'll, I guess we'll, we'll begin with Tim, is a basic question. Who do you think got better, and who do you think got worse? In this division, it's kind of interesting because – most of the teams I don't think are very good, including the team that's probably going to win the division, the Raptors. Uh, obviously, Toronto's on a bit of a different level than the rest of the teams in the division, but they all have pretty significant flaws. I, I think Toronto probably got better this summer. They overpaid, I think, to sign Damari Carroll, but Damari Carroll's a good player and it'll help them. And they got some defensive players that'll help them too, um, especially in the perimeter where they were pretty rough last year. Other than that, you know, I think the Celtics got a little bit better, which Jared can probably speak to a little better than me. But they, um, they kind of, in my opinion, have continued to kind of spin their wheels like they have the last couple of years. You know, they've done a nice job accumulating assets, but it's kind of hard to tell at times what direction they're going in. I think the Knicks got a little better, but they couldn't really get worse based off of how bad they were last year. And I think the Nets, the Nets, you can maybe argue got better. And we'll talk about that later too. But you know they kind of are going in a couple different directions at once too. So it's kind of a rambling answer. But I, I just don't know. If, it's just kind of hard to tell in this division a lot of times what these different teams are doing. And I think that's kind of reflected in the fact that you know most people consider it to be the weakest division in the league. Yeah, I can tell you as someone that's on the Celtics beat, I can confirm that there is no direction whatsoever. Uh, I mean, Ainge's approach is I can't be not playing poker if I'm still holding the most chips. So he is doubling down on the already pretty imbalanced roster where it's like 10 power forwards and 10 point guards. And, you know, you can figure out the math from there. But they figured let's just keep getting good players, keep getting guys that other teams would be interested in. And they have all their picks, uh, courtesy of the Nets for the most part. Uh, but they have... They're basically trying to consistently position themselves to be able to be one of the most active and desirable trade partners in the league. 
And Ainge has been able to, especially during the season, has been able to make a lot of really good small trades. I mean, the Isaiah Thomas trade was pretty great considering that he gave up probably their least valuable first round pick in their entire arsenal. And they got a, they got a guy that solved a lot of their problems at what is, especially next year is going to be an extremely low rate at seven million a year for Isaiah Thomas. As far as the team that improved the most, you know, the Raptors, they lost Amir Johnson to the Celtics, who I'm a big fan of. So, I'm going to enjoy covering him next year, but I love the Carroll signing and I didn't really think you could really overpay a guy this during this off season, uh, just because of how much the cap is going to increase next year. I mean, Carroll's going to be making about 16 or so million next year. And with the cap going up, he's going to be well below most guys that are of a similar quality that are hitting the free agent market. So I, I like the signing. He brings to them a, pretty much everything they need. He's the kind of reliable, tough guy that'll play really well on both ends and be the true leader. And it seems like Toronto is always kind, kind of trying to establish a real locker room leader, an encore leader. And I think he's their guy. And I love the fact that they're basically trying to bring him in and have him play the four. It's a bold move. I mean, to, he's had so much change in his career over the past couple of years, and it's amazing how well he's handling it. But to try to make the move to sign him to big money to put him at a position most likely at the four where he hasn't really played much in his career. So I love the move, and Ujiri's always been inventive, and he was smart in getting ahead by signing Valanciunas now for 16 or so a year, which is going to look pretty good a couple of years from now. So I like the Raptors winning the offseason. I think that the Knicks got substantially better. I think that they're in a, a position where it's going to take a lot for that to matter. You know, they're they're still not going to be good, but they replaced a lot of guys that were, you know, replacement players or in some cases even worse than that with guys who can actually play basketball and that could make a substantial difference for them just in the fact that they won't be outclassed all the time. And you can that puts you in the mix. I kind of talk about this with a team like Orlando, too, that once you hit a certain baseline of talent, you're in more games. You might still lose a lot of them, but at least you're in them. And I totally agree. They definitely got a lot better. I just still think they're the second-worst team in the East behind Philly, who we haven't talked about, who is still clearly the worst team. Just because they were so, to your point, I mean, they, they went from having – at the end of last season, maybe two NBA players to having eight, probably, which is a pretty substantial upgrade. But I just think they still have a ton of work to do. And honestly, I think that by the time the trade deadline comes around, Carmelo Anthony is going to be on a new team anyway. So Really? Um, you think he'll waive his new trade? I think so. I mean, wow. look, I think the Nets are the – I think the Knicks are going to be – I haven't fully done my conference preview stuff yet, but I – Unless something dramatically changes, I I think they're gonna I'm gonna pick them to finish 14th in the East. So if you do that, that means they're one of the five worst teams in the league. Now, it's hard for me to see Carmelo Anthony, assuming he's healthy um, and able to play the way you know somewhere close to where he has in the past. It's hard for me to see him wanting to sign on for that for the long haul and given the situation the Knicks are in with their roster given the situation the Knicks are in with not having a draft pick next year I think if they're in that situation come January or February one thing Phil Jackson has said repeatedly about a lot of the different trades they've made is that they're about trying to find the best situation for both the team and the player 
You know, they said that about when they trade Jr. and Shumpert. They've said it in other situations, but they, you know, they're, you know, he believes that if you're a good organization, you don't, you try to help a guy out. And there are a lot of teams, you know, people like to criticize Carmelo Anthony, but there are a lot of teams that would love to have him, especially with where the cap is going, at the number he's at, at least for the next couple seasons. And you can't tell me at the trade deadline that there won't be teams like. You know, maybe the Bulls, maybe the Rockets, maybe the Lakers, other teams. There, there'll be teams that will be interested in him. And I just think that the way things are trending, unless I'm very wrong about the Knicks and they're in the playoffs, you know, if they're if they're as as bad as I expect them to be, I just think that's the only logical outcome. Okay, assuming that Carmelo Anthony prioritizes his basketball career as opposed to his lifestyle and all that other stuff, I still don't understand why he signed with the Knicks in the first place. I mean, he he had uh, pretty much championship situations begging him to come join them, and he decided to stay with the Knicks. Phil Jackson, I mean, he's a great selling point at first, but after they were wide open to make moves this offseason and they couldn't really get their foot in the door with any really – significant free agents and I really like Robin Lopez and that was a great signing for them but they they were on the outside looking in on pretty much every key free agent target for Carmelo he's got to be looking at the situation and saying it's time to move on if I really do want to build a championship system and build a championship pedigree and uh and legacy in my early 30s because the guy's already in his early 30s it's not like he's going to be able to wait it out until he's 34 and then decide to build a championship somewhere so i mean kind of this year is the year for him to make that move right and that's why i think you know if if the knicks are somewhat competitive this year and they say they squeak into the eight seed or they think maybe they're on the fringes of the playoffs i could see him maybe waiting through next summer to see if they can get some guys next summer when there's you know, there's a lot more money for teams to spend. And they can go add more pieces, um, even though, as Danny, you and Nate have talked about and others have, it, the class next year isn't necessarily as deep as people think. So I just think they're going to stink because they still had so far to go to be a respectable team, and I think that's going to lead to him wanting to leave and then wanting to, uh, you know, kind of make him happy and, and move forward. So that's my – that's my bold prediction for the season. I'll, well, maybe I'll be wrong as usual, but that's something I'm going to be watching all year long for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think there's a possibility of it. it uh, of course, it all depends on what Melo wants. And now that he has the money part of it, he has he, he has that, and since he has a no trade, he can direct it to a degree. I just wonder who's going to want him. But we can move on. For transactions and moves, I, we've already talked about you know who got better and who got worse. Or anything that stood out to, I guess we'll start with Jared, anything that stood out to you as, as interesting or something that you think was worthy of discussion in this division? Well, one thing that was interesting is looking, comparing how the Knicks and the Celtics conducted their kind of role player uh, acquisitions in the free agent market. I thought it was fascinating that Aflalo got a two-year deal with a player option in the second year, while Amir Johnson and Jonas Jarebko signed two-year deals where it was non-guaranteed for the second year. I was, I, I, you would figure that if the Celtics can get Johnson and Jarebko to make that kind of agreement, then the Knicks would be able to do that with Aflalo, who didn't really have the negotiating position that those other two guys have. I mean, Aflalo's coming off of a pretty rough two-year stretch. So I'm wondering if that's ineptitude on the Knicks part or if they, or if, if Aflalo really had them over on something, but it was, it was pretty fascinating to see that 
the Knicks really couldn't navigate that properly. I mean, the Knicks, they, they were kind of desperate to just put a real NBA team around Carmelo this year to try to appease Carmelo. And they overstretched themselves again, just like they did with their Bargani trade. Uh, but they, it's like the Knicks, no matter how much Dolan takes a step back, they seem to always make a couple mistakes along the way. Um, and then with the Raptors, I already kind of went into it, but I love the idea of Damari Carroll and Jonas, uh, Valanciunas next to each other in that front court. I actually kind of disagree about the Knicks and the, and the Celtics and the way you framed it. I, I don't, I would say that's more of a baffling decision on the, on the, on the behalf of Jarebko and Amir Johnson, to be honest, than anything and, and good work by the Celtics than, than criticizing the Knicks. I, I think most people, um, I think I remember Danny and Nate actually talking about in their podcast and I felt the same way. I was, Stunned that Amir Johnson signed that contract. I oh, I would too. I don't. I, I would say whether they they hypnotized him or they they did something. I, it just didn't really make any sense to me. You know, I didn't think the Aflalo contract was that great, but it's probably going to be a one year deal. And even if he does opt in, him playing the next two years at eight million a year isn't a killer for them. I, I thought, frankly, the contract that they handed out that I thought was stupid was the. Uh, the Derek Williams deal. Yeah, I mean, that's where I was Williams, go. Five million dollars. Yeah, I mean that paying Derek Williams five million a year for this year and next year is crazy. I don't know why anyone would do that, given what he's done at this point. I, I'm with you. I, I I should go back for a second. I, I I really I think Demar is a really good player, and I agree with you that you can't really you Jared I should say that you can't really overpay a guy this summer. He probably just got a little more than he would have been. In a, in an ideal world, but given the situation that, that, uh, Toronto was in and the way they want to go with their roster, he made a lot of sense for them and he'll make them, he should make them better. Uh, I thought the Nets had a pretty interesting offseason in general. Um, when you just talk about moves, you know, obviously waving Darren Williams is a pretty interesting move on a lot of different levels. You know, I, I thought they made a lot of good small moves, you know, Signing Wayne Ellington, I thought was a good value move for them uh, for 1.5 for this year. Um, Thomas Robinson, on the minimum, I thought was a good value deal for them. Uh, getting Brooke Lopez and Thaddeus Young at reasonable contracts when they had the Knicks, the Nets completely over a barrel was uh, surprisingly good moves for them. And I, I know I've talked about this with Danny. I, I think the uh, the Andrea Bargnani move is uh, is certainly a surprising one and was when it happened, but, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to see how that plays out too. And, and if he can be a guy who can play 12 or 15 minutes off the bench and score a little bit for them. And the David Lee move for Boston is interesting too, because I don't know how, you know, Jared, you mentioned earlier how many combo guards and, and power forwards the Celtics have on their roster. And I just don't know how and where all these guys are going to play. I'm, I'm very curious to see how, how Brad Stevens decides to uh, deploy the troops this year. It, it, it looks like that team is built to be moved around. They have, cause they have so many different power forwards and they're going to put Amir Johnson at the five most likely. And you should be the starting five, especially for what they're paying him up front. But they, they have so many guys that while they are for the most part between six, eight and six, 10, they can play different styles. I mean, Jared Solinger and David Lee kind of play on different areas of the court, despite Solinger's reputation as a block, uh, back to the basket block guy. He likes to play from the uh, three point elbow as well. Even 
even if he only shoots about 27% from there. Um, and then Tyler Zeller has been like a pretty solid kind of do it all utility center. He can play on the weak side. He can offensive rebound. He can run pick and roll. So, I mean, they can get by with the roster that they have. They're not going to, I mean, they don't, the likelihood of them advancing out of the first round isn't that high with the roster they currently have, but it looks like it's just that they've saw the opportunity to get good guys that they would like to keep and guys that they could also be able to trade. So that's why they made the move for them. And then just going back to the Nets, I really, I really love the fact that the Nets are willing to cut the cord and pay the price on getting rid of Williams. I mean, they, they must have looked at what the Celtics did with Rondo last year and I mean, trading Rajon Rondo was one of the most effective moves that they've made just by getting rid of him, not even counting the fact that Jay Crowder played better than pretty much anyone else in that trade, uh, for the rest of the season. But just the addition by subtraction of moving Rondo, getting rid of someone that was, it was pretty, it's become pretty apparent after the way it really, uh, kind of boiled over out, out in the public with Carlisle that Rondo had been a real malcontent pretty much everywhere he's gone. And there were a lot of rumblings about how he was a negative influence in practice and off the court and stuff like that, that he wasn't really, he wasn't really helping the young guys really develop a competitive spirit. And when he left, it's like there was a switch went off with everyone. And I think that's what the Nets are looking for now with moving Darren Williams out of there. That's a really interesting, uh, because I, I, I haven't, I hadn't really thought about the Rondo situation in the same light. Um, but that, that is a great point. And this, this whole situation is, to me, the ultimate view of addition by subtraction, even more than the Rondo trade. Because the Nets, you know, as you know, need to win this year. Um, they don't have their draft pick. Boston has it. You know, and they're, they're, they, they're not trying to tank and miss the playoffs. So, you know, Jarrett Jack has, you know, Danny saw him up close. He has his faults as a player, but, he is a guy that is universally respected around the league and in the locker room as a leader and as a, a character guy and a guy that people want to follow um, onto the court. And Darren Williams is unquestionably a better player, even at this point in his career, uh, by a, a fairly significant. But he, you know, is a guy that what, by the time his time was done in Brooklyn was – not exactly the most popular guy in the organization. And, you know, there, there definitely were a lot of people that were relieved that things were finally over and there weren't going to be any more questions about, can this guy be an elite player again? Can this guy become an all-star again? Can this guy, you know, live up to this contract? No, all that stuff is gone. And I, it will be fascinating to see, how that plays out and if the Nets can have, you know, even somewhat of the kind of bounce that, uh, that the, the Celtics did after uh, they moved Rondo last year. One of the differences between those two circumstances in terms of addition by subtraction is that Boston's army of point guards gave them functional replacements and the Nets don't have those. I mean, their point guard rotation is arguably the second weakest in the league behind or in, in only in front of another team that's in their division. That would be the Sixers. Right, right. No, totally, totally. No, and that's I mean, the thing. You know, if, if it, it, that, that's the thing about it. You know, it is the bounce that they think they're going to get from a locker room that should have a lot better chemistry going to be enough to offset the, the loss in talent on the court? I don't know. 
it's not going to be easy. But, you know, that's why I say to me it's kind of the ultimate test in, in that philosophy and whether, whether it will work. Because if they're going to succeed at least to the level they need to, it's probably going to be because they outperform people's expectations at that spot. And if, if they have a guy in Jared Jack that people want to play with and, and kind of want to fight for, as opposed to a guy that maybe they didn't, you know, if that's enough to, to make a difference that way, then that'll be, that'll be something that will be pretty interesting to watch happen. You know, the thing is, when the Celtics moved on from Rondo, they did have point guards there. So they had Marcus Smart. They tried Avery Bradley a little bit. But the thing is, the guy that was really running the point was Evan Turner, who is re- who was kind of playing the three, but he was the one really orchestrating the offense and running pick and roll. And the Nets kind of have a similar situation in that Jarrett Jack kind of functionally works in a similar way to that Marcus Smart was working this year, where he's mostly a score on ball often. He's not really spotting up as much. Marcus Smart was really spotting up scoring for the most part, but they're not really the fulcrum of the pick and roll game. So we, we, we could see Bogdanovich maybe handling a bit of the pick and roll, but the Sixers need to, I'm sorry, the uh, Nets need to make a move to bring in someone that can really run the pick and roll. I, they're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, just because they don't really, just because they don't really have the the ability to. And I, I will say, I have a feeling if you lock them in a room and put them on some truth serum, they'd be pretty frustrated that Jeremy Lin signed the deal he did in in, um, in Charlotte. Charlotte. Because I, I think, I think did Lin get the biannual, Annie? Or two and a half yeah, he got, he got the biannual with a player option right. for the second year. Right. Mistake. So I think if the Nets, I think if the Nets could have signed Jeremy, if, I think if the Nets on July first had been told they could sign Jeremy Lin for the mini mid level exception for that same deal, I think they would have done it. And if you had Jeremy Lin and Jared Jack. I think you would feel better. I think most people would feel better about their point guard situation than they do now. Not that Jeremy Lin is a superstar, but they would definitely have a guy who is capable of running the pick and roll effectively. And you could have kind of a, you know, you could split time with him and Jack and, and probably get by. I think to your point though, Jared, you know, they like Shane Larkin. They think Shane Larkin's kind of had a, a rough couple of years in terms of situation and fit in the league. And they like him and think he can run the pick and roll. But I, I think to your point, you know, I, I think that Joe Johnson and Boyan Bogdanovich are going to have the ball a lot on the wings. And again, I hadn't quite thought about it like Evan Turner with the Celtics, like you mentioned, but I, I have thought that, you know, those two guys in particular are going to have the ball a lot and are going to be making a lot of plays um, for them. And they're, they're going to try to make them their, their, primary ball hand not primary ball handlers but primary creators on the on the wings and then like you said when Jarrett's got the ball he can kind of do what Marcus did and either you know try to get to the rim and score for himself or you know or be a shooter so but yeah it, it is kind of funny I really hadn't thought about it that way but it, it is it is interesting how you you kind of got me thinking about how the Celtics played last year and how the Nets could do some stuff because it is it is interesting that there's some similarities there between after they let Rondo go and the Nets of uh decided to move on from there. And I'm glad you brought up Larkin because I'd like to see if they could kind of go that route where they're trying to have ball, they're kind of their better players be ball handlers on the wings 
and then Larkin is kind of lurking, and he makes a cut, catches the ball, and then he does a driving kick because his speed is just so phenomenal. His athleticism is so phenomenal. He could, if he's on a team where the defense is is doubling up on a deadly shooter like Johnson, he's on. He's the kind of guy that can be kind of the, the little engine that could hit hiding on the corners and being a quick little a quick run, quick pass kind of guy. Yeah, I, I definitely think that makes sense. Uh, I want one question to, to kind of end the offseason review part that I think that bridges the gap for the next part. And you have to start with Tim. Is this division has a lot of choices for this question, but. What rookie are you most excited to see? Not who you think will be best, but who are you most excited to see play in the NBA? I'm really fascinated by Porzingis, uh, Christos Porzingis with the Knicks. You know, there are a lot of guys in this division. You know, I I, I think Ronda House Jeffers is going to be a fun guy to watch on the Nets. I you know I I'm curious to see how um, Norman Powell, the second round pick for the Raptors, looks this year. Um, same for their first round pick, Dylan Wright, who I like a lot in the draft as another defensive guy, um, as part of you know, their their quest to get more athletic and, and better defensively on the perimeter. Julio Okafor with the Sixers is obviously going to be very good. Um, but, I, but you know, and Terry Rozier was maybe the most interesting pick of the first round who the Celtics took with the 16th overall pick to give them yet another combo guard. But Porzingis is just a fascinating character. Obviously, everything that happened on draft night with him getting booed, by the fans in Brooklyn for, you know, because basically there were a lot of Knicks fans that didn't know who he was because they're, he didn't play in college. And then the way he played in summer league, whatever guys that I knew going into summer league that either weren't impressed with him or didn't really know much about him in terms of seeing him play or specifically seeing him play live. So then leaving summer league and, th- and saying, wow, this kid is really good. And, you know, is a pretty fascinating talent and he's got a great personality. He seems like a guy that's going to be fun to, to kind of watch grow here. I'm genuinely fascinated to see, you know, how his rookie season goes and uh, and how his career goes because I, you know, he 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 really intrigues me with what he can do on the court and he he seems like a guy that, you know, if he does become a really good player in New York, could really kind of captivate the city with his personality. So so I'm I'm excited to see what happens with him. I mean, Porzingis can't stand out. It's it's not really. It's a matter of who's the second most exciting guy because Porzingis. Like I'm gonna watch every single minute of Porzingis this season. Just his summer league was like <laughs> must-watch basketball. It was incredible. Uh, but uh, the guy next to him, Grant, is gonna be one I'm gonna want to watch. I mean, whether he's stepping on guys' chests to dunk over them or whatever he ends up doing in New York, I mean, he's gonna be he's gonna be really exciting. I'm assuming the Knicks fans are gonna fall in love with him, although he's pu- he's gonna make plenty of mistakes along the way. But he's gonna be just such an exciting player. Kind of maybe, I mean, not not the same type of player, but kind of as far as the excitement level, but kind of like what Nate Robinson was for a little while in New York. I mean, he's just going to be a guy that he's going to be making all sorts of crazy drives of the hoop, uh, leading fast breaks. He's going to he's going to make Knicks basketball more exciting to watch this year. And I mean, I think anybody, even a blind squirrel, can make them more exciting to watch this year. I mean, they were so dreadful to watch. So. The Knicks are going to be worth watching, and I'm, I'm I enjoy that. I mean, the league's better off when the Knicks are at least worth watching. Yeah, I, I think that in other divisions with other circumstances, Jaleel Okafor, R.J. Hunter, who I was super high on, and Rondé would all be worthwhile choices. But Porzingis, for me, rookies, you're you're not expecting them to be good, but the rookies that I'm always most interested in, other than Hazonia, because he's just amazing, yeah. is guys who I'm not sure. 
Because if I'm sure about it, I mean, greatness is always fun, but you don't just see much greatness. So for me, the players that are that are that I'm going to watch are the guys who I honestly don't know. And I was lower on Porzingis than most going into the draft. I just didn't see how he would, how his, his strengths would override his weaknesses. But that changed a little bit in Summer League because as something that I give Nate Duncan a lot of credit for, because he used to tell me this, is he, he was a little bit higher on Porzingis than me. He's like, he's a center. And... Oh yeah. What what I needed to understand about that is, yeah, I mean, he's not going to be. I'm I fetishize rim protection, and he's not going to be that Rudy Gobert guy, though he is big and he does use his size better than I thought he would. But at the center position, his strengths become just amazing. They become really interesting because one of the things that I focus on is what do they do that players do that's different from what people face every day? Because it's kind of like in an NFL situation or in baseball where you have a pitcher who throws a pitch that nobody on your team throws, so you can't really prep for it. Porzingis has a substantially different skill set than guys who play that spot, where he likes to be on the floor, what he likes to do. So if they use that well over time and you can iron out a little bit of his weaknesses, he becomes a much higher ceiling player to me at the five than at the four. Well, and you have you have the the right to adjust your opinion on that because you know the Knicks, for reasons I'm still not quite sure, were adamant after drafting him he was going to be a power forward, which I never really understood because whether he's quick enough to play the four or not, which I think he I personally am with Nate and that he isn't, and I think with you too, Danny. But he's also seven three, and. I don't care how fast you are. I, I, it's hard to see how somebody that big could guard small ball fours off the dribble really effectively. It just, it's just very difficult for them to do. But if you have him playing center at 7-3 and he can shoot all the way out of the three-point line, all of a sudden the gravity on offense is so much different. It impacts the game in so many ways that to, I completely agree in that his ceiling becomes way higher. And especially in the way today's NBA works, you know, if you could have an offense where you've got, you know, one of your best shooters is your center from three-point range, you know, that, that really gives you the potential to do a lot of fun things. And, uh, and, he's, a, and he's certain, you know, the way you said it too, he, he may not be a defensive player of the year candidate, but he's certainly good enough as a rim protector to, to give people problems. So... Yeah, I, I, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm incredibly high on him, and I'm, you know, both on and off the court. He seems like a guy that's going to be fascinating in New York, and, you know, I'm rooting for him to be good because, you know, like Jared said, the, the league is better when the Knicks are good, and as someone who lives in New York, it would be fun to have one of these two teams be, become really good and, and, uh, you know, become kind of a, a focal point of the league again instead of, you know, being kind of mired in the muck like they have been for a while. Yeah, it's it's like the Knicks, and I agree with you there, and it's like the Knicks are trying to kind of put him in a box by saying that he's going to be a four as a way to kind of protect him and temper expectations on him. And I, I think they probably, at least when he was drafted, especially with the booing, but of course the Knicks of any New York fan at a New York draft has booed every single pick that's pretty much ever happened, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I can't, I can't remember if Patrick Ewing got booed. I wasn't even born yet. But, you know, with, with Porzingis, the sky's a limit for him. There's, if you watch him play, it's like 
we can we can we can say sure he doesn't look like he's Rudy Gobert rim protection wise, but when you watch him at the rim, his hands he looks like he might grab one of the banners up above him every single time he sticks his hands up. He can go <laughs> up with two hands. He can go for the verticality rule. I mean, sure he's a twig, and if you blew on him as you were trying to go by him, he'd probably fall over. But he's 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 like he's he's barely out of high school at this point. And he, there's so much room for him to grow. And Rudy Gobert, by the way, was an absolute stick figure when he got into the league. And people laughed at that. And look at how quickly he turned that around, especially when he got his chance. But with the Knicks, they just want to temper expectations on him because they want to protect him. But if they really want him to be great, they're not going to put any limitations on where they're going to put him. They're not – I mean, it, it – Phil Jackson always talks about guys through the guise of, or I shouldn't say the guys twice in a row, but through the filter of how do they fit into the triangle. And that's such a mistake because if you can get your hands on a great player, don't reject it because it doesn't fit into the system you want, especially if that system, depending on who you ask, is a little bit archaic at this point um, or not as much archaic as just doesn't fit what currently is going on in the league. But with with Porzingis, it's like he's capable of doing everything imaginable on both ends of the court. And his limitations now can be overcome if he is just put in the right position, he's pushed in the right direction, and he has the motivation and the support behind him to really achieve what he wants. I will say, I will say in, in a bit of Phil's defense that they, they did say, you know, coming out of the draft, they thought he was going to be a power forward. And then by the end of summer league, they already were saying that he's going to play both spots and he's going to spend time at center. So I, I, you know, I I don't know if it's, my guess is they thought going into free agency, they were going to sign a center and they didn't want to diminish their chances of signing a center by saying they were going to play their top five pick only at center, which is partly why they were saying that I would assume. But um, especially because the power power forward crop was pretty weak other than LaMarcus Aldridge. Yeah. The guys who actually were considering changing teams. The crazy part is I actually think Amir Johnson would be a really nice fit with Porzingis. As with Robin Lopez. Robin Lopez is going to bring you the kind of similar traits that you need around uh, that Amir Johnson could uh, provide. So they should be fine in that regard. Yeah, I think they'll be good, and I, you know, and and I think Porzingis will. I think Porzingis will primarily play as, as Robin Lopez's backup, and then maybe they'll play together a little bit. But you know, Lopez is probably a twenty-five to thirty-minute player, ideally. You know, probably maybe just over thirty. So if you play him thirty, you play Porzingis to the eighteen behind him, and then maybe you play him five together. You know, then you're up to twenty-three, twenty-four minutes, and then that's probably right where you wanted to be at, then as the season goes on, maybe you'd gradually play him more. Or if you make a Carmelo trade, if that happens, maybe you play him more after that. But he's probably, you know, to your point, Danny, there's, you know, there's definitely some interesting guys on, there's really, there's really at least one interesting guy in every team in the division to watch uh, as far as the rookies go. But yeah, I think you could make a pretty good argument that Porzingis is the most fascinating rookie to watch in the entire league. So definitely makes, definitely makes that question in this division a pretty easy one to answer. Yeah, I feel like we should take a second, though, to talk about Jaleel Okafor, because he's another guy, if if Porzingis wasn't in the division, because somebody he's so skilled as a back-to-the-basket player, and there is this open question right now in the NBA of whether a player like that could really work. And, I mean, I don't think that he's going to be at this level, but I, the guy I like to phrase this in is how would Bill Walton, healthy Bill Walton, not Celtics Bill Walton, healthy Bill Walton, <laughs> do in today's NBA? And I, I think that... 
there is still a place for those players. It's just that so few of them exist, and everybody who's below a certain threshold, and I think about somebody like Dwight Howard for this, or even Mozgov with the way the Warriors attacked him in the finals, that you have to be at this really high threshold, and there are just very few individuals who play basketball at that level now, and I'm thrilled to see whether that theory holds or not. You have Marcus Gasol and Tim Duncan as evidence for what would, it would look like if Bill Walton was in the league today. So I think I don't think there would be much of an issue there. As long as you're a brilliant passer and a good shooter, you're always going to be effective. As far as Okafor is concerned, I was glad. I, I wanted to touch this quickly. I actually think I'm going to watch Okafor once or twice and then be like, all right, I think I've seen enough here, and then tune, tune him out and focus more on guys like Brzingis. Because whenever I watch Okafor... He's always like, he's always just good enough in his post moves to just get the shot off. He doesn't really, he doesn't pull off a lot of really dazzling moves in the way that Al Jefferson does, who was one of my favorite players of the last decade. Cause he'll make all sorts of amazing little up fakes and spin moves and stuff like that. The hill, it'll be like the equivalent to a crossover on the perimeter. He'll just completely fake a guy out of his shoes. With Okafor, it's just kind of like he just makes good, solid moves that get him just enough room to get a shot off for the most part. I don't. It just. It doesn't look. It doesn't look like he's going to be a really thrilling post player to watch. Well, I think the thing you have to, Jared, think about with that is that Okafor has been an unbelievable scorer in the post his entire life. So he hasn't really had to develop yet any of the stuff that mm-hmm. Al has grown to develop over the years. I. I think this whole conversation about Okafor, Danny, the one you brought up, is very silly, honestly. This guy has been the consensus top prospect in this draft class for five years, probably. I mean, I remember hearing about this guy in, like, 2010. I think he was 14, playing in Chicago. And I understand some of people's concerns about the guy, but... I think I personally think this is a case of having so much time to look at someone, we gradually start to find reasons to take them and knock them down a few pegs as we go along and come up with reasons to say, you know, this guy just isn't really as good as, you know, we thought he was before just because there's been so much time and so much so much time to look at him and so much attention paid to him. For all of the obvious benefits of three-point shooting in today's league and you know looking at teams like the the Spurs and the Heat and the the Warriors and the Mavericks that have won recent championships being built on three-point shooting. If you have a dominant post scorer, you're going to be just fine. And I think once the once the Sixers have a real team, I think he's going to be a terrific player. And I, I really, I really just think a lot of the concerns about him have just really gotten overblown, and just have been from both uh, people reacting to the way the game has gone by saying, "Well, you should never have a post-up game ever again because it's not going to be as efficient as three-point shooting." And and looking at and looking at stuff about his game and just deciding that it's not going to translate. Or it, I mean, I, I just think he's going to be a terrific player. And and for instance, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he has a significantly better career than D'Angelo Russell. Oh, maybe yeah, D'Angelo I, Russell I think will be great. Will. 
But, you know, D'Angelo Russell was good for a year and became the second pick in the draft. I mean, maybe he can be – maybe he'll turn into the next Stephen Curry. But I, I think there's a way better probability that you're looking for as a multiple-time all-star than him, in my opinion. With, with the huge question for me with – that's an interesting parallel because the issue that I have with both guys is actually somewhat similar, and it's the kind of the concept of separation. And I think that, in a way, is what, what Jared's getting to is that – Okafor has been done great against his peers, and I, I, I and I, I love him. You know, if he could do that forever, the challenge is he's going against guys who are his superiors in a lot of ways. When you think about offense versus defense, and he's a very good player, his touch is unbelievable. But will he be able to against? Let's obviously he's on the extreme, but will he be able to get his to get buckets against a guy like Rudy Gobert or Dwight Howard and the guys like that? And because in order to be worth it, you know, in order to be that real difference maker on a title team, you have to reach a really high level. He could be the next tier down and still be a very useful player in the league, and I think that's I think that's worth considering. But if but and what makes him what makes him more valuable and what makes me shade towards him being at least useful is that he's a very good passer. So if he can generate that extra attention he doesn't even have to score a lot. If he can get the attention, that'll be enough. I mean, he looks to me like someone that's ready to handle a double team out the gate, which is which would be extremely rare if that's true. It's very rare that a low post center is ready to be able to kick out and not just be able to pass back out to the entry passer on the wing, but he can look around and get a guy that's cutting. You can do. I mean, you, it's like it's nowadays people are so obsessed with figuring out what's the model and everybody has to follow it. It's like you don't. If everybody keeps chasing the same model, then no one's going to really be able to separate themselves except for the one team at the front of the pack. So if you get your chance to get a great player, regardless of what his skill set is and whether it fits with what the model is, then you go for it. And Okafor, there's no question that he's going to be able to try at least at least meet the challenge of going up against a great defensive center. He's not going to win every single battle, but he's going to be good. I, I don't I don't see any reason to believe that he's not going to be good enough to be able to go up against an all NBA center and not try to still put up 20 and 10. I mean, he looks, he looks like he plays the part of being a great low post center for him. It's that if he wants to be a truly great player, he's going to have to be able to step back to 15 feet. He's going to be able to be a little bit more quick and a little bit more, um, have different, different types of post moves. He's going to have to improve in a lot of areas, but, He's as NBA ready as anybody coming into the league right now, and really anybody that's entering their second season in the league. And he looks like he has. You look at a guy offensively, do you think does he have it or doesn't he have it? And it's pretty apparent that he has it. No, and I agree totally. And and, and Jerry, you make a great point. I, I think you know, and I kind of referred to it before. One of the most frustrating things about both the way both the way people watch and even the way some people cover the league now is there's too much of a focus on a couple things. And I think, you know, you said it best. You don't, there isn't one blueprint to winning that goes for draft lottery reforms. That goes for a lot of different things. There's not, there's a lot of different ways that you can put a team together and build a competitive team and and you don't have to have everybody trying to do the exact same thing. You know, look at what Memphis has done the last few years. You know, it, I think it's safe to say Memphis hasn't exactly followed the blueprint that a lot of the league has had. And maybe they haven't won a title, but they've been wildly successful 
and been, you know, one of probably the five best teams in the league over the last five years, playing a completely opposite style to basically every team in the league. So I am always happy to see somebody doing something a little different. And, and frankly, I think Okafor is going to be the runaway winner of rookie of the year this year because he's going to, I think, you know, to your point, he's going to be a terrific scorer right away. And you look at the way Philly's roster's set up and they are going to have kind of the automatically the best situation for him to be successful right away, not in terms of wins and losses, but they're so insistent on either getting shots at the rim or behind the three-point arc that a lot of the time it's going to be Okafor with a bunch of little guys shooting threes. And if you have that situation, you have him in the post, you throw the ball into him, he's either going to be one-on-one and have a chance to score, or ideally if he gets double teamed, you can kick it out to somebody who's open for an open three. So, you know, I think he's going to put up big numbers right away. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm rooting for him to be good because I, I do think that it's important that, you know, to, to your point, Jared, that, that the whole league isn't trying to do the exact same thing all the time because it would be boring if all 30 teams are playing five guys that shoot threes and it's just let's jog back and forth and shoot threes all game. Um, I'm, I'm certainly a fan of, th- of the three-pointer and, you know, the Warriors are maybe the most fun team I've ever watched play, except for maybe like the Suns from the last decade. But, um, but I, I think variety is good and fun and, and contrasting styles makes for a lot more intriguing games. And so I, you know, I'm hoping he, you know, he, he is a, a really good player and, and kind of, you know, at least gives us another team that's got kind of a throwback guy that, that can, you know, maybe present a different style of play for people to watch. And there's going to be a model there with Greg Monroe in Milwaukee that I think he's going to do well with a lot of length and surrounding talent around him. And and to the point that I think that both of you made, which is so incredibly important, is talent wins out in the NBA. And you talk about how teams can succeed in different ways. There is one commonality. If, if your goal is to win a championship, obviously your goal isn't to win a championship, and that's having an MVP caliber player. And why Okafor was such a such an interesting draft prospect and why I had him over at Russell by a pretty decent margin is there is a much greater chance that he becomes that guy, that he becomes that the person who can be a difference maker on a title team than Russell because, and yeah, there's a, a chance that he busts, there's a chance that he, because he, he's not a strong defender, though I think he might have been, his his flaws there might have been overanalyzed, which is something that Tim brought up, but I can see a path to him being really good much more easily than I can a guy like Russell. And even, I think, Porzingis' ceiling is high, too. Like, you think about those kind of guys, that, to me, is where, if you're a ways off, that's who you should be thinking about drafting. There's only a few seven-footers in the league. So if you have one that's really good, you're automatically going to have a pretty massive advantage. So I'm with you. If you if there's a really good, If there's a really good big guy, there's just inherently going to be less of them than guards. And so if you can find a really good one or one you think can be really good, I still believe in the adage that size is important and matters. So I'm with you totally. But go ahead, Jared. No, you nailed it, Tim. And the other thing I just want to point out that we haven't mentioned yet is that Okafor is right next to Nerlens Noel, who looks like he's going to be a phenomenal defensive player. So, Everyone is concerned about Okafor's inability to defend centers and to be a low-post rim protector and all that stuff. He's next to a guy that's projecting to be one of the best in the league at it. So you, you hopefully 
they're not going to be super concerned about the whole idea of stretching the four and spreading and all that, and they'll just play those two next to each other, and they'll just try to be as good of a team as they can because th- those guys are like a perfect pairing next to each other, and Noel doesn't necessarily fit the idea of a modern stretch four, but he's a great four next to Okafor in the traditional sense, and you don't they should just really just focus on being a really good basketball team on both ends. And you got to put those two next to each other. Okay. Since we haven't talked about the Sixers at all, I have, I actually have a question for you guys. What, what position is Maryland's Noel? Well, so for me, position is who you defend and he's best as a rim protecting center, but he can defend fours as well. It's actually a really, uh, so if you define positions defensively, like I do, then he has the same thing as as former teammate Willie Cauley-Stein, which is that he's a a five and a four. Offensively, he doesn't have a a power forwards game so far. So offensively, the way that you would want to make that work, ideally, is play him with a a guy who has more range. Like, you can think about that as, you know, like a a center with range. Incidentally, like Porzingis, it would be kind of the prototype of that. Or Carl Towns, whatever. But you were talking there, and you're talking high lottery picks. So... Defensively, which I think is more important, is I think he's a five. But if he can shoot out, if they can eventually work on him to be out to 18, let's say 18 feet, I think that would be enough. And I, I think that when, you, when you're at those spots, you can cover up offensive inadequacies with the guard play. But the defense that he provides, what I think of as... Because he's kind of... I, I see him as kind of a, a, a hybrid defensively between the advantages that a guy like Serge Ibaka brings, so he's more of a weak side guy, and somebody who's functionally capable, once he gets a little bit stronger, of doing strong side work. and Which is why Kali Stein is so valuable defensively. And I think Noel can do that as well. And so I think that he could defensively fit both spots. Yeah, I mean, with Noel, it's kind of like the same thing in that you just you don't want to put any limitations on him. So right now his game fits more of a five, but... I think he I mean, he showed when he was in high school that he could shoot the ball decently well. So they they could start trying to put him uh, 18 feet out from the basket if they want, or they could put Okafor 18 feet out. I mean, just the idea is that nowadays you don't want two guys on the block. So you want to have some space somewhere. And Okafor and Noel are both too good offensively to have them hiding on the baseline 10 feet away. So managing the spacing of that is going to be tricky. But there's no reason for me to think that Noel isn't capable of guarding all the fours and playing offensively as a four across the league. It's just a matter of how, you know, if, if you, are you in a team situation where you're willing to be patient to let that work? Philadelphia obviously is in that situation. And that's why I think you're going to see it happening. Right. And then I agree with both of you. And I, I, the other question I had is linked to that is do you guys think that long-term that's a partnership that can work? Or do you think that there's, on one side or the other, too many fundamental flaws that will keep it from really being successful. Like uh, to make them to be kind of the the benchmark of like the you know the baseline of what could eventually be a very competitive, um, you know, possibly high level team. This is because I think if you look at the Sixers now, that that's kind of the situation they're in. You know, we kind of have to put Embiid to the side and just pretend he's never going to play. Sadly, so if you look at Noel and in Okafor, the question for me is: Are they is that pairing going to be good enough together to to work for them long term for what they're trying to do? This is a vicious hedge, but the answer is if they're good enough to be both be on the floor, then it'll work. And I think that the spacing issue is overblown as long as you don't compound it with 
guys who can't shoot on the perimeter. You know, that that's where you get into issues, and that's why I have such a big beef with the Kings, is that the Kings kind of made made their situation worse because they they paired, they brought in Rondo, who can't shoot. But at the same time, so I think with those three guys, if any two of them become, let's say, at least very good, it'll work. That I think that's. I think you could play honestly. I I think you could play two true centers in the NBA and work if they were talented enough. And so, if they can reach that level, sure. You where you get into the problems are, I kind of call it in some ways. I've phrased it in terms of a guy like Doug McDermott, which is you have to be good enough to make those weaknesses tolerable. And you can do that. I mean, you think about like the Warriors playing Draymond Green at center. You know, there there were weaknesses to that lineup, though they did a better job rim protecting than they ever sh- ever should have. But the strengths overrode it. And so I think that the the Sixers have three guys, and I still count Embiid in that group, that are good enough to for to force the issue. And I mean, if two of the three work, they become one of the best teams in the league in two three years. And the important thing to remember about spacing is that it's you could only look at it through the through five guys. You can't look at it as do two guys affect spacing. It's like you have to look at the whole team. So like you compare it to Detroit, who did something kind of similar, although I'd reverse the defensive capabilities there and that the four will be better defensively than the five. But um with Detroit, the issue was that they didn't have three guys that could shoot surrounding those bigs. Josh Smith was a freaking nightmare shooting the ball. So with Philly, they need to have three really good shooters, or at least two good shooters and one guy that's a phenomenal dribble penetrator if they don't want spacing to become an issue for Okafor and Noel. But, it, I mean, there's no – I don't think there's even a single uh, moment of hesitation as to whether or not it's worth pursuing. It definitely is. But Philly has to get much better on the perimeter. They're not – they don't really do anything from the perimeter right now. They need they, they need guys that can shoot badly. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I, I definitely think it's worth pursuing, and I, I think they can coexist. Um, I was just genuinely curious because I we hadn't really talked about them, and it's, you know, you look at Philly, and there's really nothing else to look at this year. It's really just, you know, what is Okafor going to do, and then how good are those two together? Because they, I mean, they just don't have, you know, anything else worth really paying attention to. So I was just curious what you guys thought. Yeah, I, I think that was the discussion worth having. We'll move into the season preview part. I think this is pretty straightforward other than the the two the two New York teams, but I just start with Jared. How would you rank these teams one to five? I would say ideally in terms of regular season record, but if you want to use a different rationale, feel free. Yeah, I would say probably Raptors you're looking at the forty probably forty three to forty seven win range. Celtics looking at the probably forty two to forty seven range. Nets are kind of right below them. You know, they could probably get up to over a 500 record if Brooke Lopez is healthy. They could fall. They their range, if everything goes bad for them, could fall down into the low 30s. And then the Knicks, I like them to kind of make a comeback and get into the at least the high 20s, if not the low 30s. And the Sixers are going to be trying to sniff 20 wins. Yeah, I mean, I I think the Raptors will probably win the division again. I, I, you know, I, I'm not a huge, I, I have a lot of, not a lot of issues, but I, I'm not as high on them as others around the league are in general. Um, I, you know, I have some issues with some of the way their roster set up even still, but they're probably going to win the division. I'm genuinely curious about the Celtics. I don't really know if the Celtics are any good even still. Um, I, I think Brad Stevens is an unbelievable coach, and the fact that they won 
what they went thirty nine games last year. Is that the right number? They won an even I can't 40. Even remember. They won 40. Yeah, they won 40. 40. They won 40 games. I mean, it's the fact that that team won 40 games last year is unbelievable, even in the East. And, uh, you know, I can't – I don't think Brad Stevens even gets – for all the credit he gets, which is a lot, I don't even know if he gets enough because I, I just don't know if that team is any good. So I think them and the Nets will finish second and third, barring injury in some order. I think more likely than not – the Celtics will finish second, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if the Nets did. If they, because I'm with you, Jared. I think the Celtics are a, probably going to be in the neighborhood of 500 again. And if everything goes right for the Nets, I think they could, you know, get up a little over 40 win, maybe win 42 or 43 games. And you know, if, if things work out, maybe that gets them the second spot in the division. Um, then the Knicks, I think, are. I agree with you guys. The Knicks are better. I still think they're, as I said earlier, a very distant fourth. And I, I think the you know the Sixers are obviously going to be terrible again. So that's you know barring injury, that's how I see things playing out. Yeah, I, I think that right now I could totally see the argument for the for the Nets over the Knicks. I, I see the argument, but I think the Knicks are going to be better. I, I think they're going to be close. You know, it's, it's right in the same mix. But yeah, Raptors, Celtics, and that leads into the next question, which is how many how many teams from this division do you think make the playoffs? Uh, I'd say just the Raptors and Celtics, and it's going to take Brook Lopez playing 70 games well at Brook Lopez level for the Nets to fight for that eight seed. But without Lopez, and it's just at this point, I can't really say with confidence that I'm expecting Lopez to play the majority of the season. So without Lopez, I just don't see how the Nets could fight for the eight seed. And the Knicks, and the Knicks aren't. No, there yet. yeah, no question about the Nets. If, if Brook Lopez plays like he did the second half of last year, which is like he did when he made the all-star team two years ago, they can be a playoff team. But, you know, Jared, your point is spot on with the Nets. You know, Brooke hasn't exactly proven to be a picture of health the last few years. And if he is not healthy, their chances of making it are very small. As far as who will make the playoffs officially, if they change the rule this year, which I think they're going to, to make division winners ineligible, or not ineligible, uh, remove the guarantee of them making the playoffs. I would be tempted to say that there's a chance no teams in the Atlantic division make the playoffs. <laughs> but I think that Toronto, even no matter what that, I, no matter what happens with that rule, I think Toronto will definitely be good enough. I'm not sure if anyone else will be. You know, I just pulled up the standings to look at them. I think Cleveland, Chicago, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Washington, and Miami are all better than even Toronto. So at that point, you're, you've got the, you know, the Raptors, the Celtics, maybe the Nets, you know, with, you know, maybe the Pacers or the Pistons or the Magic. Like those teams are kind of all, there's the Hornets. Those teams are kind of all in the mix for the last couple spots in the East. And, uh, Probably the East will get two teams. So, you know, let's, let's say Boston probably more likely to finish second. So maybe Boston gets in. But yeah, I'm not, you know, and actually I should take that back. Probably whoever finishes second in the, in the division. So we'll, we'll, we'll say Boston, but I think it could just as likely be Brooklyn. Um, I think we'll, we'll say Boston. I think they'll make the playoffs because the extra games against the Knicks and Sixers will probably be enough to make the difference. Whereas teams like, you know, those teams in the Central and Southeast Divisions have a lot of games against 
very good teams in their division, whereas the, you know, the Celtics and Nets in particular are going to have a lot more winnable games in their division, which probably will make the difference in letting them squeak in. Yeah, that's a great point, Tim. It's that that's like it's almost I would say at least six wins guaranteed right there, maybe even eight. And for the Celtics and for the Raptors there, which is a huge advantage. And I think the Celtics are right now, as their roster sits, are leading the charge for the battle for the eight seed. But the eight seed is going to be a bloodbath again this year in the Eastern Conference because Indiana, I'm not sure how much they improved because while they get Paul George back, they're continuing to decline around him. And it's going to be really curious to see exactly what the Pacers look like this offseason and how good is Miles Turner going to be out of the jump. I've been following Turner for years now, and I'm, I'm so fascinated by him as a player. And he was, I, I, I was kind of surprised that he actually ended up only being the 11th pick in the draft, not considering how everybody ranked the draft, but just as far as how good of a player I think he can become and compared to the way that he was perceived after his first year in Texas. But that eight seed is going to be a bloodbath. And I assume the Celtics are not going to look anything like the team they look like right now. And I don't see them getting worse, so I'm assuming they're going to make some moves to try to really bolster the team and make them competitive for like the six seed or the five seed. But there's so, because they have so many parts, it's just it's so impossible right now to tell what kind of move they could even really make at this point. I think that's a really good point, and I, I wasn't really thinking about that when factoring in who's probably going to be better. You know, certainly when you look at the assets the two teams have, the Celtics definitely have more of an ability to get better during the season than the Nets. And if the two teams are similar right now, and you know that the Celtics are going to try to improve, because I, I think everyone realizes that they need to get Steven some more players to keep him happy there. Um, so he doesn't, you know, consider going back to a, a premium college job if it opens up. And just the fact that he's been kind of spinning his wheels with marginal talent and just maximizing it more than anybody could have guessed. Um, you know, I do think that that, I do think that that's something that should be factored into this discussion. I wasn't thinking about it before. For me, the question with the Celtics is the way they played in the second half of the year, if, if that was repeatable and they, I think they have, they're better talent-wise than they were last year, then they're a, pretty, they're a pretty definite playoff team as long as the general injury trajectory of the conference stays about the same and it doesn't hit them harder because what you have to think about with this when you're talking about you know the eight the eight teams is they're probably the eighth best team on talent. I think that's pro- probably about right. But the assumption has to be that at least one of the teams from three to six or seven will be knocked off by injury. And so as long as you know that you're playing the numbers game, is it more likely that one of those five or six teams falls off than the Celtics? And by the law of large numbers, I think so, especially when the Celtics have the most players that can handle an injury because all their players do the same do like are the same positions. So if if Amir Johnson right. gets hurt, okay, you just put in obviously they're not as good, but you put in one of their other big men. If Isaiah right. Thomas gets hurt, you put in one of their other million point guards. And so I think that Jared's point about that they can improve is important, but I also think that their ability to withstand it when you can contrast that with a team like the Nets or the Heat or the Pacers, you know, those kind of teams, if they lose basically anybody, their their chances of making the playoffs get dropped substantially. What excites me about the bottom of the East is that the teams are actually watchable this year. So, you know, the bottom of the Eastern playoff picture. So the Pacers, the Pistons, the Celtics, the Nets, you know, all those teams are going to be 
competitive. It's I don't think it's going to be a battle of attrition like it was last year, unless the top comes, you know, the middle of the middle comes down enough due to injury that it lowers that quality of play. But I, I think it's going to be a lot more fun this year. I totally agree. And and uh, I was just going to say really quick, I, 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 to your point, all those teams at the bottom of the East got better. I mean, if you go through the list, you know, Charlotte made moves to get better. Miami's obviously going to be better. Orlando should be better just from getting Scott Skiles, who I think is a far better coach than their their previous one. Um, Detroit, I think, got better. The Knicks got better. You know, you know, I, I think the Nets will – like even the Nets and the, the Celtics, they might not have gotten dramatically better, but I think they made – enough interesting moves that teams like that will still be interesting to watch. So I, um, I totally, I totally agree. Last year was the worst year for the Eastern conference in my lifetime. It was, there were like, there were like <laughs> two teams that you could actually watch. It was so bad. Every it team, was hard. It was every hard team was hurt. Yeah. Was covering it with you. Yeah. yeah. It, and like it we were hard. both, and you know, both of us Tim were covering teams that were in, that were very awkward and going through a lot of you know strange uh, kind of ups and downs throughout the year. Right. And, and they yeah. looked in both both the Celtics and the Nets looked brilliant uh, at times and then looked dreadful at others. And they went through major facelifts throughout the season. <laughs> and you know, you look at the Eastern Conference and like Orlando, I'm going to be obsessed with this year, mostly because of my uh, my also major affection for Mario Hazonia and getting to watch him play for Scott Skiles. I wonder he how much blood fun. is going to be shed. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, he, um, he is fun. He, he was—he's my favorite player, rookie uh, player in this rookie class, at least right now. Just as far as watching and enjoying him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, everybody at the bottom, kind of at the bottom of the East, went through all their pain, and it looks like pretty much all of them got it out of their system, besides Philly, obviously. Uh, coming through. I mean, Detroit's going to be in a better shape, in, in a better position than they were. Indiana is. Uh, I mean, they're kind of just still plateauing right now, so we'll see what happens there. Or actually, I guess they're still bottoming out right now. But it's going to be – every single matchup's going to be worth watching, and it's going to be competitive. And until the injuries start to set in throughout the course of the season, and you know they're going to eventually, there's we're not going to have all these throwaway games like we had last year, especially like March and April – we're, and even February was just so full of all of these games where it's like teams were throwing out four guys that they picked up on waivers and from the D league. It's like, we're not going to, it's not going to be nearly as bad this year because the team, the league, the league overall is a lot more well-rounded. And I think part of that is because the, there are so many teams with cap space this off season that a lot of teams were able to make solid trades and solid free agent signings so that you saw the middle of the pack teams making good free agent signings and even the bottom of the pack teams were at least bringing in decent players. Yeah, agreed. And a, a, a current, we've mentioned them a couple times. I know they're not in the division, but just as a, as a thought exercise, do we think Indiana is going to be terrible? Because I think Indiana is going to be terrible. I, I don't think I they're don't, going to be terrible. If Paul I George can play, I think they'll be fine. What, what you have to remember. But what else with do they that? have besides Paul George though, Dan, at this point? I, George I Hill was all right. I think uh, he's terrific. Monte Monte can score. Yeah. What the question for them is? Can can Paul George lift them enough to make them relevant? And I I think that he can. I mean, I think that he can be a top fifteen, maybe even top ten player in the league. But you're right that their huge problem is: do you have to game plan for anybody else in their front court? You know, like they have all these guys. They they eventually they replace David West and Roy Hibbert with just mostly what I would say are a bunch of guys. You know, like Jordan Hill's all right. You know, it's not like he's abysmal or anything. Jan Mahini's fine. 
And so, Miles Turner, I love, but it's going to take him time. I mean, you can't expect him to be good yeah, right away. I, he's not going to be ready. I love, I, yeah, I love Turner too. He was really good in Orlando. Yeah. Really, I, really good. Probably I, the most eye-popping player I saw this summer. But yeah, he's I, I think take it's going to be huge for them, though, a huge help for their long-term development. And this is a parallel to the Minnesota Timberwolves. I think it would be great for them if they if they were bad this year. You know, if they were disappointing, if they could end up in the top eight, let's say top eight picks. I, I think that they're better than that if Paul George stays healthy. But if they could do that, because then you get basically it's kind of like what the Spurs did that one year they were bad when they got Tim Duncan is. When you're just a little bit off, use that time to stock up, and then you're ready for the next. You're ready for the next big, you know, the next big boom. And I, I think right. there's a possibility that they could be respectable. But what I, I hope, if Paul George is okay with it, is that they, if they're not, you know, if they, if they're looking more in the mid 30s than the low 40s, that they just, that they, they're willing to go into the low 30s because. Considering, as we've talked about, the balance and the quality at the bottom of the East, that could make a difference of like five draft picks if they between that and the West. Of if they could go from let's say like thirty-seven, thirty-eight to thirty-two, that would be great for them in the long term. Right, and, I, and Vogel's a great coach too, Frank Vogel. I mean, they, I just look at their team, and you know, I, you know, not only is it a matter of who they're going to game plan, who you're going to game plan for in the front court. I just think they're going to be really bad on defense. Like that whole team has been built on, on being a strong defensive team that scored enough to win. And say what you want about Roy Hibbert at this point, he still was a really good defensive player. And, you know, they lost him and David West and basically signed Jordan Hill. I just think they could be really bad, especially because, you know, like, like we said before, all these other teams in the bottom of the East at least got somewhat better this offseason and I, I think they took a step back and even with Paul George healthy I think that could lead to them winning you know kind of like the Knicks like even with Carmelo healthy I think the Knicks are going to stink because they just don't have enough around them and I and I, I think Paul George is a terrific player but I, I just kind of wonder if they're not going to have the same problem when you look at who they have on their roster. Indiana's training camp is going to be one of the most interesting in the league because as even though Paul George is their best player, I think their identity was mostly built, at least when they were still good, was built on David West's leadership and toughness and consistency and Roy Hibbert's incredible ability underneath the basket defensively. And they lost both those right. things now. They're, I mean, if, if they lost those guys, they bring in Turner, who's a good offensive player and has the potential to be a good defensive player. And, and I already said it, we, we all agree. We absolutely love Miles Turner and we love his potential. And then Jordan Hill is like a solid backup four, but I don't think he's really a starting four on a good team. So for them, they're really focusing more on just the scoring of Paul George and Monte Ellis right now as their identity. So Paul, uh, so Frank Vogel has the task of kind of, kind of, kind of reinventing the way he wants to run his team and reinventing how this team is run through training camp. Because unless they have a really good training camp or they really establish a new identity for themselves, it's going to be a really slow start to the season because they can't really go back to what they were doing before. And, and of course, what they were doing before was mostly without Paul George. So they're trying to kind of re- figure out all over again, how do they work with Paul George? Well, we've seen teams and primarily the Clifford Hornets and Bobcats, I think he was there before the change, succeed without a real reliable rim protector. But what makes Vogel's job so much harder is that he's uh, coming from a situation where they already had that. It's not building a system from scratch. It's 
adjusting to adjusting to a whole a whole new reality. And I, except for Monte and Stucky, I generally like their perimeter defenders, but their interior guys are just a lot of question marks. And so, I, I think that they're they're a team like there are a couple of teams like this in the East for me, and a couple in the West too, where I can see a pathway that they're really really bad. But there's also a distinct possibility that they're respectable. So I think that you kind of have to toe those lines. I think that's true with the Nets, too. Like, I can see a path where the guys that they have that are good, like especially if Lopez misses time, that, that, that it's hard for them to beat teams. And so it's a possibility, but they all have enough positives to make me go, I could see them doing all right. The Nets have total boom and bust, total boom and bust potential. I was just say, who's going to shoot the ball from downtown for the Pacers? Like, do they? Is there anyone on this team that's going to be a good three-point shooter? I guess Miles when he plays. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Uh, but I mean, Rodney isn't a good three-point shooter. Monte inconsistent. Paul George solid. We'll see how well he's shooting right now. And George he's Hill. George Hill's a solid George spot-up good. shooter. Yeah. If Budinger can stay on the court, he's a solid spot-up shooter. Yeah, I just I just look at them and I just. You know, and that's a fair point about the Nets. I mean, I you know, you could you could make the same you could definitely make the same argument for them that you know, if things go right, they could get the 7th or 8th seed, and if they go wrong, they could finish 13th. Are we you know, are we assuming neither outcome would really be surprising. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask, are we assuming that Chase Budinger is going to be in the rotation because talent-wise, sure, but he really hasn't played in a while. It's been a couple of years since he's been healthy. The way yeah, he, he's another guy. He's another guy that if you know that, that's just if he can play, sure. But the chances of him actually playing are unfortunately not very good. The the pathway for that is that. If, if Paul George plays minutes at the four because there if he plays primarily small four, there just aren't enough minutes because you think about Monte and Stucky and George Hill and George and Paul George. Those so many guys. God, they have so many Georges and so many Hills. It's very frustrating. <laughs> so they have a lot of guys that are above him that are above him in the rotation. But if you shift fifteen to twenty of those minutes for Paul George, that opens him up for Solomon Hill, another Hill, uh, for for Budinger, and also you have to make the assumption that somebody in that group is going to get hurt. So you know it'll open open up some minutes. But Budinger, I don't think he's good enough. To, to make it to offset his weaknesses. So he's he's a guy. You know, he's another guy like Jordan Hill. You know, he's fine. You know, if you have him in your rotation, you're not going to get killed, but you don't want him to start. So yeah, I, I think the Sixers are, are not Sixers, the Pacers are are in that in that circumstance. But what I like about them is that Paul George is just like we, we still haven't seen prime Paul George and you talked about Melo. Like I think Paul George right now is better than Melo has been the last couple of years, and he could carry that. Totally he could, agree. He could give them that identity, but he has to be on the floor, and it's always hard when you haven't seen it in a year to say, "Oh yeah, he's going to do that," especially when you're coming back from that kind of an injury. Well, yeah, and even I, was, with... I was one of the people saying he was better than Carmelo when they met in the playoffs a couple of years ago, when Carmelo I think finished third in the MVP voting. I mean, I thought Paul George was a better player than Carmelo then, and assuming he's healthy. I definitely think so now, but this, but this whole discussion even goes back to the earlier point we made, which is that you look at the East now and, you know, for a lot of reasons, it's easy to make fun of the Eastern conference and it has been in recent years, but I think it, I think this year's East is legitimately interesting for basically every team for at least one or two reasons, which is going to make it way more 
fun to watch and follow this year than it has been in recent years, which for the NBA is a very good thing because, in, you know, like to your point earlier, Jared, last year, you know, there were a few teams worth watching and then the rest were just, you were just slogging through to get to the playoffs. And this year you can make a pretty good case that 13 or 14 of the teams in the East are worth paying attention to for, you know, one reason or another. And, uh, you know, as basketball, as a basketball fan myself, I'm happy about that because there'll be more reason for me to want to tune in and watch games. I think it's good. I said the only downside is as a basketball fan, I'd say the Atlantic division is probably the least interesting one in the league right now. <laughs> I, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that. And even there, there are still, there's still a lot more to watch than last year, but yeah, it's still, still going to take some time. Yeah. Uh, anything else you guys want to talk about? The one team we haven't talked about really at all is the best team. I think most people think in the division. So we probably should at least discuss Toronto given they just signed Valanciunas and the other moves they made. So I don't know. I don't know how we want to do that, but, um, you know, we just haven't really discussed them at all. So I, was, I think it's I worth. Was, I was going to bring up Terrence Ross. So that's, uh, we'd start with there. I mean, what, is Terrence Ross going to make the leap this year? And then if, if he does, considering they just drafted DeLon Wright, what happens with DeRozan? I mean, that's, that's kind of the main, cause I know on the agenda here, Danny, you had as what players will break out and Ross was kind of the guy. I think Ross and Solinger are the two guys I'm really focusing on there. Ross has so much potential to be a pretty dominant score and it, we just haven't seen consistency out of him yet. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, hot take alert for me. Go ahead. I think I think Terrence Ross is Wes Johnson. Ooh, that is really hot. I don't, I don't, I don't really. I know he had a fifty-one point game because he hit a billion three-pointers in a game. He just doesn't seem like a guy that's ever going to do it for me. Maybe I'll be wrong, but I, I just look at, I look at him and I, I just see a guy that, you know, most of the time he kind of floats through games. You know, he's a guy that's supposed to be a, you know, got the potential to be kind of a game-changing guy on the wing, but he doesn't really do much. I mean, he's a decent three-point shooter. Last year he shot 37% from three, which is fine. Um, but he doesn't really do anything else. He doesn't really handle the ball, isn't a very good passer. You know, he just kinda, he's just kind of there. And, I, you know, I just don't, I just don't, I don't see him as a guy that, that is going to to break out. My I've, uh, my breakout guy is actually the other guy that they just signed is Jonas Valanciunas. I think I think that was a great contract for Toronto, given where the market is and where it's going to go. And I, I think Valanciunas has tons of upside left. And I, I think that you know I think Dwayne Casey's job this year has to be to find a way to get him more involved in the offense and have less of the offense be. Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan just doing whatever they want and just shooting one crazy shot after another. Because I, I don't – part of the reason I'm down on the Raptors overall is I, I think the way they comport themselves offensively hasn't really been a sustainable model given that so much of it's just built on those two guys. And last year it was those two guys in the Williams who since departed just taking crazy isolation shots and trying to draw fouls, which – Specifically, DeRozan and Lou Williams were really good at, but I just don't think long-term it's as sustainable as what a guy like Valanciunas could be for them if he 
is given more of a focal uh, a focal role in what they're trying to do. And then his and then the job of Tom Thibodeau when he coaches the Raptors next year can be to make Valanciunas a better defender. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think the that, Raptors. That... That would be interesting. Yeah, that, I think I think that the Raptors that are going to be relevant, and I I think they're a little bit below, assuming full health for everyone, the real top teams of the contenders to the Cavs. But I like a lot of what they have, and they're deeper than I think people give them credit for. I like that they have Biombo as well. They have Corey. They have a crazy amount of guard depth now. But in terms of Terrence Ross, I'm really not sold on him. I would love to be wrong. He's he has a lot of physical potential, and he has his strengths are very nice. But uh, something that Tim brought up is something that speaks to me is I don't think he brings enough to the table. But the Raptors are in a really fun spot because they have a lot of flexibility that people aren't really acknowledging because they have not a ton of really significant commitments. Demar Derozan can opt out, which I think everybody expects that he will. And they're going to get a lottery pick, probably, from, from the Knicks, I would assume, you know, with the way that that's going to work out. So what they can do is they've basically made the decision this week, and they rightly at the amount they got him for, that Valanchunas, Carroll, and Lowry are probably the three constants. And, and if, you know, if somebody made a ridiculous offer for, for Lowry, I think they would move him. But then I think everything else is open. And so if... DeRozan is awesome, you keep him. That's fine. You can do that. If Ross is awesome, you keep him. That's fine. But they're going to have serious cap space if they're not satisfied with any of those guys. And with the test of if they play Carroll at the four, they can get a better answer to that question before they go through free agency next year. And then whatever the answer is, they can work with that. And they're good enough that they should start with that experiment right away so that they can at least figure out who they want to try to pursue, uh, who they want to try to move out as December and February especially comes around for trades. So they, I mean, this year, it really the first half of the season is the make or break for Terrence Roth's there. And I, I, I think the way I asked it originally kind of falsely set it up for me to think that he's going to knock out DeMar DeRozan or anything like that. I'm actually, I'm not sold on him either. He's, it's just his, his ceiling seems high enough that he should be a really good starting guard, but we haven't seen consistency yet. And I like to give guards at least their full rookie contract before I try to make a decision on whether or not I think they're capable of being a 20 point score. So this is really the first half of the season is it. And then they have to make a move at that point because they have, I mean, they, they got a, I like Wright. Uh, he's extremely explosive. He reminds you of Ross and DeRozan in a lot of ways. And he's good enough that if I'm Toronto, if I'm Ujiri, I'd be willing to sell relatively low on Ross or DeRozan or whomever I'm moving just to clear the way for Wright and get another good player and get more shooting or just at least get guys that are smart NBA offensive players that can pass the ball because their offense last year was such a mess and they need to build a legitimate offensive system and doing it through Valanchunas at the center and Larry at the point is the way to go. And Valanchunas has all the makings to be a really good, a good center. That's a good focal point of an offense that can pass the ball. Well, but they don't really have the guys around him yet and he's not quite there yet, but this could be the year, especially with them betting on him. And the contract extension was great considering that the, the amount they're paying him. And when the market really opens up next year, it matches up for them perfectly, but they, they need to learn how to pass the ball. And whether it's getting a new coach or whatever they need to do, they need to be a good passing team. Because with all the trends that we were talking about earlier in the show, there's one constant throughout NBA history is that if you can't pass the ball, you're not going to be a good team. 
Right. And and to your to your point, Danny, about the the Raptors, I kind of disagree a little bit in that I think Carroll is a guy that's that's going to be there for the duration of that contract, but I'm not even sure about that. I think that they are willing to trade any of those guys, including Valanciunas. Now, you probably don't trade Valanciunas now until next summer because of the some of the, the rules that go into um, what his contract is like right now compared to what it will be in a year in terms of making it harder to trade him. But I don't think that the Raptors are – really satisfied with anything in terms of this is a guy that we're sure about going forward. You know, I think even though I said earlier, I think Carroll got a little more money than I would have liked. doesn't change the fact that in a year, that's a very reasonable contract that anybody in the league would be happy to take. And same goes for Valanciunas, same goes for Lowry, even for Corey Joseph. Look, next year, Patrick Patterson is a, a good power forward will be making $6 million in an inspiring deal. You know, they've got, so they, they have the flexibility next summer to make a lot of different moves if they want to. And it wouldn't really surprise me if they do. I mean, the, the funny thing about this Toronto team, which I don't think enough people really think about, is the Raptors are in this position by sheer luck in that hmm. they – were ready to trade Kyle Lowry to the Knicks. And basically James Dolan decided not to trade him, trade for him because he didn't want to make another trade with Masai Ujiri. And so instead of trading a first round pick for Kyle Lowry two years ago, which would have almost certainly sent Toronto in an entirely different direction, building through the draft and getting young guys, now they've kind of pivoted the entire other way and they went out and signed Carroll and they made these other moves and now they've got all these veterans on, on pretty reasonable contracts that they can flip around moving forward. And I, I would, I mean, I, I shouldn't say I'd be shocked, but I, I just, I would be surprised if they don't, by the start of the 2016 season, between now and then, if they haven't made some kind of dramatic move with one of those guys those you know main pillar guys on their roster to further to further change the, the look of the team because I, I agree with you Danny I think they're a pretty good team but I I don't think they're anywhere near the quality of the teams at the top of even the East let alone the top of the league and given Masai Jiri's background and track record it's hard for me to believe that he's going to be content to just ride it out with a solid to you know, above average team that doesn't really have the ceiling to maybe go beyond that. Yeah, Tim said two very important things that we need to give Masai Jiri credit for. It shows how good he is. One, he's got a good team that's still improving and doesn't have a single unmovable contract on it. It's all like everybody on the team has an attractive uh, contract from a trade perspective, which very few teams in the league are able to pull off. And that's pretty phenomenal. And the other is just that if you're one of these GMs in the league that can develop a reputation of that other people don't want to trade with you because they're scared that you're going to fleece them some in some sort of magical realm or something like that, which I've heard other teams say that about Danny Ainge too, which I was a little surprised by. But, I mean, Ujiri, there's no question he's one of those guys, even if it's coming from James Dolan, who I'm pretty sure a five-year-old kid could probably pull one over on James Dolan. 
Yeah, I, I think that the Raptors, and, and it's incredible for them that they're in this situation in a division where everyone else is still figuring things out, so they get such a different margin because their fan base is pretty happy if they, you know, if they make the playoffs and they're relevant, I think their fan base is pretty thrilled about it. And so they can do in a way what Houston did, which is that they can rebuild and retool and be flexible to do other things without being bad. And you, they can do that in the, and they can do that at kind of a similar level to Houston, except that Houston's doing it in a good conference. So they're, you know, they're a step up, but the step up doesn't really matter relative to the conference. And so, I, I think that Toronto's in a great spot. And the, if if the Knicks blow, if the Knicks have a really bad year because they get the they get the worst pick of the Knicks and the Nuggets, and they can get let's say like a, the, a top eight pick. Then you start to get into some really fascinating possibilities with them. And if Corey Joseph works out, I could totally see them trading Kyle Lowry next summer. No, me too. And I, the one thing I will say as an argument to the point you just made is, and I, I'm not saying this to be facetious, have you ever been to Toronto, Danny? I have not. It, despite having a Canadian citizenship, I'm a dual citizen, I've never been to Toronto. It's, an, it's one of my favorite cities on the planet but it's also the most insane city from a sports standpoint in the continental in the on the continent i think people do not realize how insane the fans are there and how insane the media is there in a lot of respects and it's a different atmosphere and i don't necessarily agree that they have the ability to just be patient and kind of make the playoffs and everybody's going to be happy for a while. You know, I, your point about Dwayne Casey and Tom Thibodeau earlier, you know, I know it was a bit of a joke, but I think Dwayne Casey's job is on the line. And if they, if they're in the range, we think they're going to be in the six, seven, eight range in the East. I don't think that's going to be good enough for him to keep his job. And yes, I think they're going to get a lottery pick from the Knicks or the Nuggets. However, I think you get the worst of those two picks. So, you know, that, that could still be a top five or six pick, you know, which obviously would help what they're doing. But I do wonder, I, I do wonder at some point it, when people will start to grow a bit impatient with the situation there. I mean, you, you mentioned Houston. You know, I, I think Daryl Morey's done a terrific job there. But it's easy to forget now that, before Daryl Morey made the James Harden trade a couple of years ago, he was going into that season with his job thoroughly on the line. There were a lot of people that thought that they, he, he was going to get fired after that season because they probably weren't going to make the playoffs. And Les Alexander, the owner of the, the Rockets, had kind of said, all right, we've been doing the spinning our wheels thing for a long time, trying to get assets. Now we have to go be good. You know, we have to start winning some games. And I, I do wonder if, if you know, let's say Toronto does finish seventh, which I think they easily could in the East, and they lose in the first round to, I don't know, Chicago. Say they lose in five games Chicago. I, I mean, do they go into next season with a mandate that they have to be better or that everybody gets fired? I, I don't know. And I'm, I'm really going to be curious to see what happens with that because that that situation always puts teams as we know in really interesting spots when they start to feel pressure to win maybe they start to do stuff that they normally wouldn't do in the past and 
you know, I just think this whole the whole situation with the Raptors, I think, from their roster to the, the, the situation with Dwayne Casey to, you know, expectations on the team, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch because I, I don't think it's – I do think that a lot of things are up in the air, and I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out and, and how both the media and the fans up there and then how the team all, all react to how, uh, to how it goes. I wouldn't be surprised that if Toronto doesn't have a really competitive second round series or of course wins the second round, I wouldn't be surprised to see Casey let go because he's been there for a while. And usually with teams, uh, as far as roster construction and coach consistency, usually it's probably three to four years of trying to do the same thing before they make a coaching change. And it's been several years for Casey. Now they've had the same core. This will be the third season with a clearly ident- identifiable Kyle Lowry uh, led core that was a tongue twister. So I, I wouldn't. There's good coaching candidates available out there. Toronto is a great destination. It's a great city. You're representing the entire nation of Canada when you're there. And I mean, those guys enjoy massive stardom throughout the entire country when they're there. So they do really well. Um, but Toronto's, a, I think, is a pretty attract, attractive setup, especially if you're a coaching candidate and you want to be with someone that you have confidence is a good GM and good ownership. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them try to bring in a new coach if they're not if it's the team isn't coming out of the playoffs with the momentum of that we're ready to make an Eastern Conference Finals run next year. Yeah, I, I think we're we're definitely on the same page there. And also, that job is going to be pretty desirable depending on, you know, what else is open. And I think uh, when I was saying Thibodeau, I wasn't joking at all. I think that he would be a logical fit there. Oh, no, I just, I just, I yeah, no, I knew, I didn't mean you were joking that way. I just meant you were, I just meant you were, um, uh, yeah, I didn't mean you were actually joking about him as a possibility there. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, I, I no, think that I totally yeah, agree. it's a, it's a good job, and there there will be other good jobs. I mean, I, depending on who the Lakers Lakers get in free agency, that there will be you know that's a big job. There will be a couple other ones, but yeah, I'm excited to see how this division because what this year is going to be is I think it, it, you can think of it kind of like a TV show. Like this is going to set up bigger stuff. You know, it's it's not going to be the most exciting episode, but it is going to be exciting in the sense that it gives you an inkling of what's coming because teams like the Knicks and the Celtics, and even the Raptors, to a point, are going to be giving us an idea of where they're going, and there's so much young talent in this division that it'll be much more worth watching, even on a team like the Sixers, who are probably still going to be abysmal. Yeah, and I hope for Brett Brown's sake, the coach of the Sixers, that they're just better um, this year, and and that, you know, hopefully Okafor and Noel can stay healthy, and they at least are competitive, because I, I think it's easy for people to to mock what the Sixers are doing, and I understand why. But the guy I really feel the most for is him because I, he's a really good guy, and I, I think he's a great coach. I mean, I look at the teams they've had the last couple of years, and kind of like the Celtics winning 40, I don't know how they won 17 or 18 games the last two years. I mean, I, they, they just have nobody that's really any good on their team, and, you know, I think they should have won 10 and you know, a lot of people might say, well, that's what's the difference between 10 and 18. Well, to, to me, it's a pretty significant difference. And I just, I just would like to see him finally start to get some players he can work with. Cause I think he deserves a chance to show that he's as good of a coach as I think he's proven over the last couple of years, even when he hasn't had the talent to really compete the way that, 
I think anybody would uh, would like to. And I think if Brett Brown hit the coaching free agent market, he would be at the top of pretty much everybody's list out there, along with Thibodeau and whomever else you want to put up there if Van Gundy counts. But I don't think any team in the league right. is looking at what's happening in Philly and thinking that Brett thinking it has any reflection on Brett Brown. And you're absolutely right. I mean, eight games is a lot in the NBA, and that team, if you put if you put like Jacques Vaughn uh, with that roster. They would have won ten games, and not to take a shot at Jock Vaughn, but they were winning a lot of games well, with, you can, with a lot of talent. You can in Orlando. you can take a shot at yeah, you can take a shot at Jock Vaughn if you'd like. I, I yeah. think he, uh, I think he was maybe the worst coach in the league the last couple of years. <laughs> I just didn't understand anything Orlando was really ever doing, and uh, no, he wasn't worse than Shaw. I, I think that. Well, Brian, I Brian Shaw was in a very unique situation there. I think Brian Shaw deserves another chance, and apparently everyone that's worked with Brian Shaw agrees that he deserves another chance. While Jacques, uh, yeah, Vaughn, Net, it's going to be a while before we see him Net, as a head coach anywhere. Yes, the Nets really, the Nets were very interested in Brian Shaw a couple of years ago, and I, I don't think he was worse than I don't think Jacques Vaughn was a better coach than him. I just think Jacques Vaughn was in a situation that was less. Uh, it was less uh, combustible and it was more out of the spotlight than the one Brian Shaw was in. Um, I think Orlando, he just was, he was a really terrible coach. Uh, he's just a real, he was just a really terrible coach in Orlando. They should have, that team, that team I think should have won more games than it did the last couple of years. And I, I think, I think they're a team that's going to have a real shot at, getting that eighth seed solely because of the upgrade they made at coach. So I think Scott Skiles is a very big upgrade, and I, I think that team will be significantly better just because they uh, they replaced him. And to your point, Jared, I agree. If they if they had a replacement-level coach, which we could say Jacques Vaughn's a replacement-level coach if we want, I think they win several less games and are dramatically less competitive. And uh, – you know, I, I I agree with you completely. I think if I think if Brett Brown, you know, if his contract was a three year deal and it was up next year, I think he would be right at the top of many people's list to get another job, you know, immediately if he wanted it. Yeah, I, I think I think we're all in agreement. Uh, you all all ready to to end this now? <laughs> Wait, I need I, actually. <laughs> I'm very late, but I do need to get your guys' input on this, Jared Solinger. So I always I always need outsider perspective so that because in Boston you're once you're in the torture chamber of Boston media it's hard to get out so I always need outsider perspective. Does Jared Solinger have value across the league right now? Consider and I don't know how many people around the league have noticed that he's actually gotten in much better shape. Although we haven't actually seen it on the court yet, but he's been taking plenty of photos on Instagram and Twitter of how he's lost a lot of weight and he's starting to look actually build a bit of a muscular frame. But does Jared Solinger have value around the league right now? I think it depends on what you define value as. Would a team would a team want to trade for him as opposed compared to or compared to the middle of last season where it looks like he was starting to starting to at least make the turn into turning into a pretty good power forward? I just I don't think so. I mean, I don't I don't think he's a guy. I I don't. I don't think he's a guy that some team is going to look at and say, I want that guy on my team. Now, maybe, maybe if Boston was trying to move a contract, like say, cause how many, the Celtics have what, 16 guaranteed contracts right now? 
Yeah, they have to get rid of someone like Flea Perry yeah. Jones unless he dazzles during training right. camp. Right. So they have to move a guy. So if if they wanted to move a guy for an asset prior to the start of the season, maybe they could get something for Sollinger. But I just don't. To me, he's a backup power forward or a rotation power forward, which is a you know it's a decent player. But he's about to get more expensive, and I, I just don't really know if he moves the needle for anybody. But that's just my opinion. What, Maybe Danny has a different one. What Tim just said is about the money part is the most important thing. And so why guys on rookie-scale contracts are so valuable is that they're systematically underpaid, and we can talk about whether that's fair or not. It isn't. But he's about to be properly paid because unless you're a max guy or you take less because you're Markeith Morris, you're going to be, you're going to be properly paid. And that is why I think teams would be a little bit scared in terms of, I think he's a good player. I think he could be a, a, a low end starter in the league and he has potential to be more than that. But there are kind of a lot of those guys right now. I mean, so, but you think about it, let's say, let's make the comparison. Granted, there's some off the court stuff. I just brought up Markeith Morris. I would rather get trade for Marquise Morris right now by a lot than a guy like Sullinger. But I like what Tim said about him being. I think I'd like to say that he's he's a sweetener in a deal, but he's not the prize. And there are teams that would really like him. I mean, you think about what Charlotte has committed to in terms of lottery picks for power forwards, and I think Sullinger right now, like I would rather have him than any of the guys that they've you know Zeller and and Marvin Williams and Kaminsky. Like, I'd rather have him than any of those guys. But he's not so good that he's, as what Tim said, he's not so good that you say, that's the one I want. I'm, you know, like, you don't call Danny Ainge and say, hey, what do you, like, what are you thinking for Jared Selinger? You call Danny Ainge and say, or Danny Ainge more accurately calls you about probably your your top five pick, and you say, uh, maybe not do that. What about Jared Sollinger? Like, and that's fine. I mean, I think that you can do that. But when you look around the league and you think about what his strengths and weaknesses are, it's hard to find that spot with him. And so that's what makes it hard for a trade. He's not one of those guys who fits in every system. He's not one of those guys who fits with every big man combination. But I like him. And so I root for him to work out. And I feel bad that he's on a team where he's probably not going to get to showcase himself because, for whatever reason, Boston made the commitment to make these to make the rental on like a guy like David Lee. When if they had just given those minutes to Jared Sullinger, at least you get an answer. With David Lee in the mix, you're not answering any of your own questions. Say, I don't think Sullinger's opportunity is going to be that limited with David Lee. He's still, I mean, last year he was playing about 28 minutes a game, and he should be getting pretty much the same amount of time this year. This is kind of my fundamental problem with the situation Boston is in. Now, I think Danny Ainge has done a very good job of accumulating assets in a lot of trades. And some, you know, I, I like the Isaiah Thomas trade. Obviously, the trade with the Nets he made was good. He's made some other moves that have been good. But the, the, your question about Jared Sullinger to me completely sums up the situation Boston is in. They have no, they have a lot of guys that are okay, but they have no one anyone wants. And if you are trying to kind of churn assets until you can land a star, which is clearly what they're trying to do. And it's kind of what they have to do. If the Nets don't stink this year and they don't get a top five or 10 pick from them, I don't know where the path of their star comes from. 
because they have enough mediocre to decent players that they're not going to stink. Um, to Danny's point, even if they lose guys to injury earlier, they're, they're, they've got infinite guys, it seems like, to replace all of them. And they, they are not going to, they're never going to attract a star free agent, Jared, as you know, never have. Yeah. And so they're just kind of stuck in this no man's land where they don't really have, they have all these assets and all these young players, but, you know, if they, if they can't get somebody to take their picks, I just don't really know where the guy's going to come from. Like, for example, they did everything right to get Kevin Love, right? They had all yeah. the assets, all the picks they had, they had these young guys, everything, but they didn't have Andrew Wiggins. So they didn't get Kevin Love despite everything they did to line themselves up to get him. So short of getting some kind of break, I just don't know where – I just feel like they're on a hamster wheel, and I don't know when it's going to stop turning. Yeah, I mean, for for Boston, it basically, there were a couple of moments where things have just basically fallen apart for them. I mean, uh, falling in the draft to number six, which wasn't like – it was pr- the probability made that the most likely thing. But last year, getting the sixth pick and getting smart, who's good, while well, they really wanted one of those top three picks, which would have been a game changer for them. Although if they ended up with the bead, obviously you know where they'd be right now. But for them, it was that when Cleveland won that lottery, that ruined everything for them because they were going to get love. That trade was going to happen at some point. They were the ones that were going to pull it off. But then the Wiggins thing threw it, threw everything out of whack. And obviously that Wiggins trade was a no brainer for all sides, or at least for, uh, for Minnesota. So that really derailed the entire program for them. And they're trying to recover from it. And they're just continuing to double down on the scenario. And Ainge is just doubling down, and he has the support from ownership. And his coach appears that he's adamant that he is on board with it, that he's going to do whatever he can with whatever hand he's dealt. And Ainge is continuing to hope that that situation emerges. And it's a good strategy if your ownership and your coach and your players that you at least you have are willing to be patient with it. But if that Nets pick isn't a top seven pick for them, this year and the Nets are able to kind of to fight for a playoff spot or, you know, be in the teens, then they, they have to look at making some sort of massive blow up move because they, I mean, sure that Nets pick swap in 17 could be really high, but at that point they're just wasting so much time. And there has to be a certain point where, you know, patience and time and actual passage of time, there has to be an equilibrium point where they meet each other and you have to make an actual decision. You can't just, you, I know Philly's trying to trust the process, but five years, there's an effect of just time and in just kind of not really having any sort of opportunity to move forward that has a negative effect on organizations and on player development. And there's a certain point where you have to cut the cord on it. And with Boston, well, just to be- approaching it pretty rapidly. Just to be clear, I, I don't. I totally. I agree. I, I think they've done a lot of smart moves. I just don't know where the end game is going to be for them. Not like you said, not through any fault of their own. I just wanted to yeah. well, and they make have it a, clear they have I wasn't trying situation. to criticize Ainge. They have a sticky situation with Tyler Zeller too, because they have to make a decision on him. You know, they have all these guys. Because what Boston's problem for me is is beyond the the issue of you know their assets is they're getting to the point where some of those assets are going to become non-assets because Tyler Zeller, Jared Sullinger, you know, maybe their market will be a little bit depressed by restricted free agency being restricted free agency. But I don't even know that you necessarily, if you're Boston, if you'd rather have an, you know, a more open slate, there's clearly good basketball players and no one's saying anything other than that. But if you're also taking cap space off the table or heavily reducing its place on the table, 
you're limiting yourself in some ways more. And I, I think they, they, you talked about the idea of moving during the season. I think they have to try to make a decision on Zeller and Sullinger in the same way that the Raptors do on Terrence Ross, because if you let them hit free agency, you're going to be faced with a really hard decision because teams are going to have so much money this summer or next summer in 2016 that they're not going to know what to do with it. And some guys are going to get really, really bad contracts, and you never know if they're going to be your guys. So you better be ready to make that to have that decision made. And so if, you, if there's a number for you that you don't think they're worth, to me, you trade them you trade them in like December if you if you have that decision yep. made, and I'm going to be excited to see what teams have the guts to pull that off. Considering a lot of those players in this group, the Sullinger, Zeller, uh, Ross, conceptually Harrison Barnes group, are almost all really popular with their fan bases, and they're all a part of good teams. Like that's the other part of this. It's not like these are bad teams. These are useful contributors on on playoff teams, but you have to make that decision because if you don't, you're going to get scorched in, in a couple months. And that and if you're a good team, your margins are tighter because you're actually relevant. This isn't the Sixers. You know, you're not just throwing, you're not just kind of throwing another log on the fire. That get Losing them for nothing would be quite bad for these teams. Ainge insists that flexibility is the most important thing. And I would, I definitely agree that it's a very viable strategy. There, the Celtics organization's flexibility will peak at the trade, December to February this year during this trade season because of all the reasons you just stated. Because Solinger and Zeller, who are talented players that have a clear, have an unclear value across the league right now, are still cheap and they're still on their rookie contracts. Once those guys are off their rookie contracts, they lose most of their potential valuable in flexibility. And Zeller, you know, if Zeller on most teams, I think would be a no brainer to extend right now because you don't, you probably don't have to pay him that much money and he's a good, reliable player and you kind of know what you're getting out of him. And he's able to make big plays. He had a couple really clutch game winners for the Celtics this year, but he's, he's a good player. But on this team, considering how many guys they have and how uncertain they are and how badly they are willing to really move anybody on the roster, they, I don't know how they can give Tyler Zeller an extension right now because then they're kind of stuck with him. Well, and, and uh, I, what I was going to say to uh, to your point about the those those young guys, Danny, is you know, God forbid, you know, we don't, you know, you and I don't necessarily think Terrence Ross is any good. But God forbid you don't re-sign him, and then he goes to some other team and is good. Your fan base then goes, "Why? Why did you le- let this guy leave our team that was already good, and we had him, and you let him go play for somebody else, and now he's really good?" Which is something that you know these teams, rightly or wrongly, always think about. And to your point, Jared, about the Celtics, quickly, the reason they traded for David Lee pretty clearly to me was that the one thing they didn't have was a large expiring to put in these trades. Yeah, and so now between David Lee and Amir Johnson and Jarebko, you now have essentially 32 million in expiring contracts to go with Sullinger and Zeller and Olenek and you know, maybe James Young and all these other younger guys they have. So you're not packaging three guys making two million dollars to make a trade. You've got 30 million dollars to play around with plus these young guys. So. I think you're right. This, you know, this is kind of between the Nets pick and the contracts they have. This is kind of the do or die season for this Celtics plan. And if if it 
you know, if, if Danny can make a home run trade, then it could work out great. And if he can't, then, you know, like you said, maybe they have to consider, you know, going the opposite direction and, and trying to bottom out or something. They're always an interesting team to watch because you always know Danny's trying to do stuff. And, and there's, there's little doubt that this year he's going to be right back in the same position trying to, uh, trying to make something happen again. Yeah, it's it's a it's a crazy situation. It's unique in this league, and the, and unlike a lot of the other ones, it's going to be resolved during the season. But I, I've definitely taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> it's been a wonderful no problem, two man. hours. Thank Thanks so much to Tim and Jared for taking the time. You can read Tim Bontemps in the New York Post. You can also follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. That's T I M B O N T E M P S, and you can. Listen to Jared on CLNS Radio in Boston. He also contributes to Celtics Blog and hosts the Garden Report postgame show. You can follow him on Twitter at CLNS underscore Jared Weiss. That's CLNS underscore J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S. I loved having them both on. Great to talk about some larger stuff, too. I mean, it was talking about the Pacers and everything else. It's been a very productive week for, for Real Jam Radio in terms of podcasting. I also did an episode with Ben Golliver talking about Team USA and a bunch of other things, one of my favorites that I've done, and did the Southeast Division with Robbie Callen of CBS Sports and Mike Prada of SB Nation. So that was fun. Going to continue the Capsule Series over the next few weeks, going to you know try to balance it out a little bit. And also have on some other guests. It's not just going to be the capsule. It's going to be going to be some other things. And even working on guests for October already because I love doing this and it's a great way to do it. Also, I wanted to promote the NBA Utopia project. It's something that I've, I'm doing primarily for the for sporting news right now. It's the concept is to build an ideal NBA. I've gotten some great user responses, and I have at least two more pieces coming down my own pipeline on it. What the CBA and my on court suggestions. Also, the CBA Encyclopedia for Real GM is still going strong. And, of course, Dunked on Basketball Podcast, which Nate Duncan does, and I'm a frequent co-host. And so if you like this podcast or Nate's, please subscribe to it on iTunes and listen to it and uh, give us a review because we're in the process of getting advertisers for both shows. And that is the kind of information that is very useful to them and can help us keep both of these going. I've been fortunate enough to do Real GM Radio now for almost two years and I keep doing it as long as they let me do it. So it's been a blast so far. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.